0: Good morning, everyone. (laughs) Today's scripture is Psalm 132. It can be found on page 519 in the Bibles in front of you. Psalm 132. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, He, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Mighty One of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. You and the ark of your might, let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne." If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach to them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread." Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. Therefore, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Amen.
1: Amen. Good morning. All right, let's uh, pray together. God, we come to you in Jesus' name this morning because of his work and because of the glorious access that he has granted us into your presence through his life, his death, and his resurrection. God, I ask that this morning as we open your word that you would fill this room with the presence of your spirit. God, would you speak to us? Would you give us a spirit of revelation, a spirit of wisdom? Would you enlighten our eyes to see you and Would you compel our hearts toward obedience and pursuit of your holy face? God, would you stir among us life and zeal and passion and desire to walk in your ways for your glory and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So. We've been talking about it for a long time. If you're new with us, if this is your first Sunday here or you're newer with us, we uh, have been noting that this fall marks a particularly unique season in the life of our church. Uh, God has been calling us in this season in a very specific and clear way to pursue his presence and his purposes, the power uh, that he has in himself toward his church as the foundational reality of our church's life together. So as we enter into a season, a new season in front of us of building and working toward such things. I actually am really excited to close our time in the Psalms with this portrait of David's cry from Psalm 132. I think that it will be for us a remarkable picture and model and example for us in this season in the life of our church. And I'm actually asking that Lord, the Lord will do something really potent and particular this morning. I'm asking that the Lord would stir up among us a heart cry like David's to say, I want to be a part of a company of people who pursues the face of God in such a way that he would have a resting place among us that he would make his habitation among us. Now, as the church, we are the dwelling place of God, but there is a manner in which, as the people of God, we can live in agreement with God in his person and in his purposes to where he does not strive with us. And he takes up his habitation among us. And I am asking the Lord in a very specific way as we kind of enter into this new season, God, would you stir up our family to pursue you in this way? Would you deposit in us this heart cry that we heard read from the beginning of Psalm 132 where David says, I've made this vow before God that I will not give myself rest until God has rest, until God has a place to dwell. Look at letter D. Psalm 132 is a poetic retelling in song form of the heart cry that David had to build a resting place for God. And in his context, this is speaking specifically of the temple. You can find that story in 2 Samuel 7 if you'd like to go read that on your own. This also tells the way that David's desire moved God's heart and the things that God promised to David in response to this vow. This psalm, I think, provides for us a remarkable or dynamic portrait of a heart that's gripped with God's purposes. And as we step into this season in our church, I'm asking that the Lord would stir this up among us. Sort of this heart cry like David's, both as an individual levels, right? Our life in God, in the pursuit of him in prayer and worship, transformation, obedience, that we would see this stirred up among families. How do we orient our time and energy, our relational investment, our discipleship together in our vocations, right? How we see our stewardship that God's given us uh, in, in our vocations, how we steward our time and our money and our energy oriented around the purposes of God and that he would do this among us as a church. So that's my hope for today. We're going to just walk through the text itself and then we'll spend some time at the end making a few applications. So look at Roman numeral two. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open them back up. I want you to look at this in your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, take that hardback Bible in the pew in front of you. It's yours. Take it. It's a gift from us to you. Write in it. Circle things. Underline things. Put your name in it. Take it home with you. We see Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, the hardships he endured. He swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not go to my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until. Take that word, underline it, circle it, highlight it, bold it. Do whatever you need to do to make that word jump out to you. It's a massive part of this statement I will not do these things until something. I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. The situation of the psalm, look at letter A, seems to be or most likely is a song that was written or a psalm written by Solomon. Uh, likely at the dedication of the temple. so Solomon David 's son, seems to be writing this song as a petition to the Lord to remember both the vow that David made to build the house of God and the promises that God made in response to David 's heart cry. You can go read that in Second Chronicles chapter six. But it begins with this petition, God. Remember David. Remember in David's favor. Now I want you to notice something. Very rarely in the Old Testament does a prayer begin with, remember a person. Usually prayers are what? God, remember your faithfulness. Remember your word. Remember your covenant. Remember your steadfast love. Very rarely are these moments that break in and the petition comes out. God, remember this person, right? In Exodus, we see Moses do the same thing. Remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember Jacob. God, remember these people who in their weakness and in their brokenness reach towards you in a posture of faith in such a way that you responded to them by proclaiming your word to them they went when they didn't have any any evidence or proof that you were going to show up and they reached towards you and said yes lord remember that and we see this here Solomon goes i want you to remember on david's behalf this reality this shows us i want you to just catch this this isn't the main point of the text it's not the main point of our sermon this morning but i want you to catch this this demonstrates to us that there are moments and movements of our hearts expressed in obedience to the Lord. Now, faith looks like something. The reason I said obedience there is faith looks like something, right? When God shows up and asks us to believe, it always has skin in the game. Right, It always looks like something. It's not just this conceptual reality out there that we give mental assent to it and can check a box. It is concrete, right? When he shows up to Abram, go and leave everything and I will tell you where to go and I will give you a land that I have yet to show you. And Abram goes, okay. And he starts walking. That's faith, Right? That is concrete faith, right? There are moments where we see there's movements of our heart expressed in our faith-filled obedience that actually matter to God and will be remembered by him. Look at Psalm 56 here. David says, God, you kept count of my tossings. God, you saw every one of them. All of my tears, you put in a bottle are they not written down in a book before you? He says, there's moments of my life that you remember. Look at 1 Corinthians 4. Paul says the same thing to the Corinthians. He says, there's coming a day when the Lord will bring to light things that are hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart and all of us go big old gulp oh no, here it comes, I know my heart, my heart is dark, this is is not gonna be good, he's gonna bring to light the darkness and the purposes of the heart, and then what does he say? And then he will give commendation. That means there are things that God sees in your life when you reach in your heart to the Lord in a spirit of faith-filled obedience that he remembers, he writes down, and you may never remember them, but he will forever. And it starts. Remember David, God. Remember David's hardships. We see here, right? We were brought immediately into what did this cost David? Right? A commitment to God's purposes in his generation was extremely costly to David. He experienced affliction and disdain from others as he sought to pursue obedience. To God's ways in his life. Look at Psalm 69. David writes of this in his own words. He says, It's for your sake, God, I've borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I've become like a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. Why? Because zeal for your house consumed me. I got bit with a bug to see your glory established. In my generation, a place for you to be honored and exalted and worshiped and loved and adored. And it consumed my vision and I could not shake it. And it made me like a crazy man to the people around me. They they reproached me. Zeal for your house consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Look at page two. So he goes on. He says, okay, so remember that David did these things, the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. And I just want to highlight this for a second. Why do we get this statement, the mighty one of Jacob here, right? It's literally the only place in the entire book of Psalms where God has given this title. And there's only three other places in the old Testament where this is used. Uh, why is it not um, the, the, the God of the hosts of heaven, right? Why does he say the mighty one of Jacob? And I think there's a really important reality here for us. I think to highlight Jacob in this context is meant to bring like a memory to us of Jacob's two kind of high points in his life as it relates to what we see playing out here. The first is, the place when God encountered Jacob at Bethel. Right, So in Genesis 29, you probably know the story. Jacob is leaving. He's fleeing to get away from his brother Esau, who he's swindled out of his uh, inheritance. He's running for his life. And one night he goes to bed. He lays down and he has this dream where the Lord shows him the open heaven with a ladder coming down to the earth and angels are going up and coming down and administering the purposes of God. And God stands there and says, I long for a dwelling place among my people. That's the point of it. He says, I am the God who comes and dwells with his people. And the awesome thing about it is Jacob can't do anything to merit it. All he does is go to bed. He literally falls asleep and God shows up and goes, I'm the God that comes and dwells with my people. Unmerited unearned. You can't attain to it. You can't reach high enough. You can't jump high enough. You can't yell loud enough. I come to you. Then we get this portrait, the second episode of the life of Jacob, where Jacob wrestles with God at Peniel when he's coming back from his time away and he's going back and he's wondering if he's going to be received by Esau, right? There's these years and it's like, is the, is the water under the bridge now? Like, are we going to be cool? He's going to hate me. I took his birthright and his inheritance from him. And God shows up to Jacob and wrestles with him through the night. We see this dynamic picture that God is also the one, right? He's the one that shows up and says, you can't do anything to merit it. I have to open the heavens and come and dwell with you. And he is the one that desires that his people wrestle with him to experience his blessing. God longs for his people to seek his face continually, right? There's a dynamic dynamic paradox right here between these two. Number one, God has to come, right? God has to work. Only he can, only he can initiate. He has to open the heavens. He has to put the ladder down. Angels have to go up and down upon it. We can't do that. And he goes, come and wrestle me. Come and wrestle me. Come and seek me. Come and lay hold of me. Come and petition me and plead with me that I would be who I promised to be to you. Do not give up. Strive with me until I rest with you, is what he would say. So David makes this vow, right? To the mighty one of Jacob. This is who you are, God. You're the God that has to show up and you're the God that loves when your people wrestle with you. You love when your people lay hold of you and will not let you go until, until what? Until God has a dwelling place, he says. So David understands that God desired something. God longed for something. God is seeking something. You can go to the New Testament to prove that. Go read John chapter 4. When Jesus is with the woman at the well, what does he say? God is seeking something. He wants something. He longs for something. What does he want? People to worship him in spirit and in truth, to lay hold of him, to know him, to come into agreement with him, to be at rest with him. The dwelling or resting place of God speaks of a place where he is not striving against mankind. Right? This happens more we see in the scripture as his people are in agreement with him. Both in his nature, that's called worship, and agreement with his purposes. What he promises, that's prayer. Right? How we see the paradox begin to resolve here is that God desires his people, a company of people, to wrestle with him in the place of agreement until, until, until. So what David does say is he says this, this is it. I'm not going to rest until something. I'm not going to give slumber to my eyes. I'm not going to go up to the comfort of my bed. I'm not going to just do business as usual until God has something. The content of the vow gives voice to David's heart cry to seek a resting place for God. David vowed to live with extravagant devotion, seeking the Lord with everything that he had. You can read those scriptures on your own, but that includes him spending time before the face of God, right? One thing I desire and I'll seek after to be before your face, right? Spiritual disciplines. I gave myself with fasting and sackcloth. I actually humbled myself and took less comfort to pursue your face and giving with radical extravagance, right? We see in the book of chronicles that david set aside a hundred thousand talents of gold that's more money than anyone on the planet currently possesses elon musk has nothing on that that's just the gold and then silver and like kind then timber and stone and bronze and iron so much i lost track of it i couldn't even count it it says in first chronicles 22 What we see here, number two, is that David is unsatisfied or was unsatisfied. Something began to lay hold of him in his imagination or in his desires or in his longings. He got bit by a bug that he could not shake. He was unsatisfied with the comforts of the world and the cares of this life. He recognized the futility of wealth and ease and pleasure that was disconnected from God's manifest presence and his kingdom being made known in the world, right? This is what happens. David goes, I've been doing the math. I have all of this stuff and God is not at rest among his people. I have this nice house made of cedar and gold and all of this and God lives in this tent over here. God doesn't have a resting place and he becomes discontent with anything less than seeing God take up residence among his people. So let's go to the top of page three. You can read some of those on your own. Essentially where it moves is David goes and finds the ark. He brings it to Jerusalem. He sets it up in a tent in his backyard. God tells him he cannot build the temple. He has too much blood on his hands. Solomon's going to have to be the one that does it. So Solomon actually puts the energy into building the temple. As he's putting it into the ark, he prays the prayer of verses 8 to 10. Arise, Lord, come and take up your inhabitant. Uh, among us. Take your rest. And the picture there is like God sitting on his throne so that he can establish his kingdom in the world. This is what Isaiah picks up on in Isaiah 66. The heavens are the throne of God and the earth is the footstool. It means it's the place where he now is in absolute charge. His kingdom is expressed. And we see that happen. Okay, now, Roman numeral three. This heart cry that David has, this longing of his heart, God responds. So we see this in 2 Samuel as well. 2 Samuel 7, David goes, I want to build a temple for God. And Nathan goes, sure, if that's in your heart, go and do it. And then Nathan goes to bed that night, and he just falls asleep, and God shows up. And the Lord goes, no, no, David can't build the temple. He's got too much blood on his hands. It's going to have to be his son, but I'm going to do something else. I'm going to give David a promise that will never, ever, 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 ever fail. He responded to me in faith and I'm going to show up and give a promise to David. So God swears an oath back to David. Look at verse 11. Then the Lord swears to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. And if anybody in the world doesn't have to make a sure oath, it's the God that hung the moon and the stars and the sun and spoke light into being. He gets to do what he wants and always does exactly what he purposes. He doesn't have to swear an oath. This is for you and me. He wants us to know how serious he is about this. He doesn't need to stand up and take an oath on this. He's wanting you to go, oh my goodness, if the living God who never breaks One jot or tittle of his word made an oath. How guaranteed is this? How guaranteed is this? And what's the oath? One of your sons, one of the sons from your body will sit on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I will teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on the throne. The Lord has chosen Zion and he has desired it for a dwelling place. This will be my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I've desired it. So letter A, after David was forbidden by God to build the temple, he was in fact given a promise of a son who would sit on his throne forever. And the beautiful thing about where we get to sit this side of the new covenant is we know the son of David has come. We know the son of David has come and accomplished the work and is now sitting on the eternal throne. It's unequivocally clear that Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David, that God chose to sit on his throne for all eternity. Hear Peter's words on the day when the church was born. This is Peter's first sermon. You want to know the first sermon of the church? It's this. It's actually God fulfilled his promise to David. That's the first sermon of the church. Look at this. Brothers, I want to say something to you with confidence about David. He died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God swore with an oath to him. Hey, there it is again. God showed up and said, I'm going to swear an oath to you, David. Here it is. Peter remembers. He said he swore an oath to David that he would set one of his descendants on his throne He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor was his flesh given over to corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, brought him to life. And of that, we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel, therefore know something for certain. And people of God know this for certain. God has made Jesus both Lord, that means sovereign King and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So we see in the New Testament, that Jesus is the son of David, right? The one that was sworn an oath about, right? There will be one who sits on your throne to order and establish it, to keep it forever. There is going to be a son from your loins who will do this and fulfill this. And we see that it is Jesus Christ. And then God goes on and says, I've chosen Zion. Now the Psalm is clear that God in his promise to David chose Zion as a dwelling place or a resting place forever. Now, I don't have time to prove this. We'll, we'll uh, if, if you want to talk about this, maybe we can talk about it another time. But I'm going to make declarations, and then maybe we'll, we'll, we'll get to the backdrop of this at different times. But in the new covenant, we see that this does not speak of a geographic locale. Go read Hebrews chapter 12. Right? We don't come to a place that can be touched or laid hold of. We come to the heavenly Zion, the temple in heaven as we gather together as the people of God, the new Jerusalem, the one that is eternal and standing in the heavens, made without human hands, the one that has been promised to the saints of God as the place where we will dwell with God for all eternity. It doesn't speak of a geographic locale, but rather the type of, an order of worship that happened on Mount Zion at the time of David. So something you may not be aware of. There are two mountain peaks in Jerusalem. One is Mount Zion. This is the city of David. This is where David set up the tabernacle to worship God, right? He put the Ark of the Covenant there. There's this little tent out back and he put singers around it right? People to sing the songs of the Lord uh, and worship the Lord. Because David understood Psalm 22, God is enthroned on the praises of his people, right? He he establishes his government and his kingdom more when his people are in a line with what he desires. So he has this crazy idea that no one in human history had ever done, right? He goes, here we go right at the heart of everything. We're going to put this Ark of the Covenant in the middle, my backyard, and I'm going to pay people to sing worship songs. I can't imagine everybody going like, David, that's a crazy idea. Trust me. This is right. So for the season that David has this, there's actually two places where there's worship happening. There's the singing sacrifices that are happening on Mount Zion. And then there's the blood sacrifices happening down the road at a place called Gibeah. Solomon builds a temple on another mountain in Jerusalem called Mount Moriah. And he brings those things together. This is kind of important. Why does God say I chose Zion? not Moriah, right? There's a real importance here. It's because there will be a day in the new covenant when God reestablishes the order of how the people of God lived with God around worship and adoration and praise that means something to him. Look at this here. I'll prove this one to you several hundred years after David's life, while the temple is still standing, this is fascinating, right? So the temple's still there and the prophets are starting to say, hey, there's gonna come a day when God's gonna destroy the temple. Amos stands up and he goes, okay, in the day when God restores everything and shows up to fulfill his promises, he is going to rebuild, and everybody goes, the temple. And he goes, that little tent that David had. Look at it here. In that day, Amos 9, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches. Kind of scratch your head and go, what? James, fast forward a couple hundred years, after Jesus comes, ascends to heaven, the mission of the church goes forth, James understands That in the church, what's happening right now, God is fulfilling the promise that he gave to Amos. Look at this. Acts 15, verse 12. The assembly falls silent, right? They're arguing about, should we let the Gentiles into the church as Gentiles? Or should we make them subscribe to the whole Old Testament uh, ritual? All of the external realities of the covenant, Paul and Barnabas stand up and they tell how God's working among the Gentiles, all the signs, the wonders. After they finish speaking, James stands up and he goes, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as as it is written. He wants to go, hey, guess what? God is doing what he promised and he's going to tell him what he's doing. Verse 16, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so the remnant of all mankind might seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord. Look at the top of page four. This means very clearly that in the new covenant, the people of God are the tabernacle of God, the temple of God, the place where God dwells and are meant to be the resting place of God Almighty. Right, in the New Testament, the priesthood of believers no longer deals with facilitating the sacrifices related to purity or stewarding the Lord's presence among his people, right? Jesus alone can do that. This is Hebrews chapter nine. You can read that on your own. look at number five. This means that the primary place that the people of God, the new temple, the new tabernacle, fill their priestly role is by offering up sacrifices of worship to the Lord, invoking his name, thanking and praising him. This is like incense offered on the altar of the temple. Okay, so we see this. Now, I want to make some application for us. Look at number four here. I think that God desires to manifest his presence and his purposes among his people. That's not a crazy statement, right? Right. We see all through the new Testament, go read Ephesians chapter two. We're being built up into a dwelling place of God, right? We are one spirit with the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter six, God desires to manifest his presence and make known his purposes among his people. That's like, maybe the least controversial thing that you could say, right? God wants to dwell with you, people of God. He wants to dwell with you. He wants his presence to be known among us and he wants his purposes to be manifest in our lives, that we would live in agreement with him in order with with what he has designed and what he has accomplished. He has in Christ Jesus provided for us the gift of salvation. Right? He has saved us. If you are in Christ, you have been saved and set at peace with God. He's given you access to his presence. He's placated his own wrath against you in the death of his son. And now he has poured out his spirit upon the church. Let her be still. God desires that his people would live in agreement with him. Okay, so here is this dynamic paradox at play. Let's go back to the God of Jacob. You could not save yourself, right? Just like Jacob could not reach high enough, yell loud enough, jump up and try to lay hold of God to come and dwell with him, you cannot save yourself. Right? None of us, no, not one of us is good. No, not one. Every one of us has transgressed and violated the holy glory of the uncreated God. In our nature, we were born and we willingly all chose that way. We all willingly chose to transgress him by running against what he desires. We made ourselves enemies of God Almighty. We were like sons of disobedience going astray. We could not bring ourselves back to the place where we could experience life with God. He alone could do that. He alone could provide the sacrifice necessary to forgive your sins, to placate his wrath that was deserved against you and me. And he did that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We could not do it. That is absolutely true. And God Still desires that you would wrestle with him. Those things can both be true. We, we live in a day where we have a real hard time holding on to two things as true at the same time, right? We really do. We have a real hard time holding on to more than one thing as true. Both of these things are true. God alone saves you. And if you don't put your faith in Jesus, if you're in this room this morning, you are an enemy of God. You are outside of his family. Now there is an invitation to you to look upon the son of man on whom the angels of heaven ascend and descend, who has been lifted up, uh, stretched out on a cross that you might have life in him and him alone. That invitation is open to you today. You can only come in through him. But family, do not miss that God loves to be wrestled with. He loves it. He wants us to seek to lay hold of him and his promises and go, God, this is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. This is what you said you would do. This is what you said you would do. Would you do it? Would you do it? Would you do it? We don't see yet in our city people coming to know him, right? The fact that there are lost in our city should provoke in us a wrestle with God until God manifests your kingdom in this place. Bring people who are far off and who do not know you, who hate you, who are running headlong into a life of eternal separation from you. God, would you pour out your grace and glory in such a way that you would bring mass salvation in Kansas City? God, would you do it? You've done it before. We've heard of your works. Would you do it again? Would you do it again? Would you do it again? I'm not going to rest until you do it, until you have a resting place in this city. God, There is sickness and brokenness and relationships that are wounded and marriages that are hurting and children that are wayward and people who are oppressed in addiction and anxiety and darkness. God, we don't want that. You don't want that. God, would you break in with your light and your power? I'm not gonna give you rest until we see your healing power at work, your delivering power at work, your voice leading and guiding your people. God, would you do it like you've done it in the past? Just like you did in the past. This is what God is calling us to. This is what is in front of us. God still desires for his people to wrestle with him to see his kingdom made known in specific places. Look at a couple verses here. Letter C. God declares that he waits to be gracious to his people. God promises that a posture of repentance, which is turning to him in agreement, will move him to respond in seasons of refreshing and renewal. He promises that he will dwell with those who are lowly in heart and tremble at his word. Just hear a couple scriptures over us this morning. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. That implies he wants to do something. God wants something. He wants to move. He wants to work. He wants to act. And it's not. God isn't like a holy vending machine, right? Like we just show up put our stuff in, pull the lever and he gives us what we want. What God longs to do is to grip your heart and my heart with a vision for what he has promised because he wants us to come to him and go, God, this is who you are. Would you do what you promised to do? Right? We're not, we're not naming it and claiming it over here right? This isn't me going like, I'm just trying to pull down the blessing. Like I I want a better car. So in the name of Jesus, I got a better car. That's not what we're doing, right? This is the God that says, Hey, I want to come and dwell with my people. And when I show up and dwell with my people, everything's different. Everything's different. The lost are saved brokenness is healed. Bodies are restored. Marriages are restored. Families are restored. Life is put in where there was darkness. There is deliverance and freedom where there was oppression. Come and ask me to do it. Come and ask me to do it. Now, we don't get to determine how much and when and how and all of that. That's up to him. What he does ask for us to do is come and wrestle with me, come and wrestle with me, come and lay hold of me like Jacob did and say, I'm not going to give up until I get the blessing. I'm not going to go to my bed. I'm not going to go to the comfort of my home. I'm not going to give myself rest. God, until you are who you say you are in our city. God, on our city block, in these neighborhoods, God, in my vocation, in my job, you are waiting to be gracious. What does he go on to say, Isaiah? He will surely be gracious to you when? At the sound of your cry. What's he waiting for? God, what are you waiting for? Come and wrestle with me. Come and wrestle with me. Come and remind yourself who I am, and what I promised. I love it. I love when you come and ask me to be who I said I would be. Look at Chronicles 7, 2 Chronicles 7. If my people, called by my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. What what does he say? Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin, and I will hear their land. Peter picks up on this concept in Acts chapter three. At the early church, he tells the people, repent, repent. And what's gonna happen? Your sins are blotted out, thanks be to Jesus. We have no condemnation before the face of God. What a glorious, he could have stopped there. That would have been enough. Your sins are blotted out. You have peace with God. We all pack up and go home. But he doesn't stop there. What does he say? And times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. Right? We see in our day and age, things are getting darker and darker and darker. Things are getting harder. Right? We're Ricky said this a couple weeks ago. We're more obsessed with safety and comfort than any generation in human history, and we're more anxious and to, uh, full of to- to toil than any generation in human history. What do we need? Times of refreshing from the hand of God, from his presence. How, if my people who call, are called by my name humble themselves, turn to me, ask me to be who I said I would be, times of refreshing would come. There's a call, I believe, to reorient our lives around pursuing the presence of God and partnering with his purpose in our city. And this is what I long for, for us as a spiritual family, right? As we enter into this season, as we turn the page and we're entering into something new and we see this new season emerging, I'm, I'm pleading with the Lord, God, would you stir us up to be this kind of people, to be the kind of people that say, we are, we are awestruck that you would save us. And we're going to respond to you just like you want to be responded to. We will not give rest until you have a place to rest with us, among us, among us as a spiritual family. Can you imagine, can you imagine what it would look like if God took up his dwelling at 3921 Baltimore. Now, God doesn't need a place, right? We don't worship on that mountain or this mountain. We worship in spirit and truth. What if the people of God who worship here became in real ways? I'm I'm talking about manifest, tangible ways. We are ultimately, essentially, right? We are the dwelling place of God. What if God took up dwelling with us and his kingdom was made known and his power was made known and his life and his truth and his grace was made known in remarkable ways in this next season? What if he would stir up our hearts to not let go until? Amen.